Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. In 1775, Johannes Papanank died in a Moravian village in Ohio. He was a member of the Muncie tribe and had been born some 70 years before. In his long life, he had been a prophet, preacher, reformer, and diplomat, dedicated to finding a home where his people could live in peace. As Richard Pointer observes, Papanank bewildered us because he breaks our categories. He was a prophet who inspired peacemaking, not war a nativist who embraced Christianity, a critic of white practices admired by leading white Pennsylvanians, a war refugee protected by some whites against other whites. Papanank refuses to be who we think he ought to be, and in this complicated life, we can find a different way of seeing early America. Dr. Richard Pointer is Emeritus Professor of History at Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California. He's previously written Encounters of the Spirit, Native Americans and European Colonial Religion, and Protestant Pluralism and the New York Experience, a study of 18th century religious diversity. Dr. Pointer, welcome to Historically Thinking. Well, thanks very much, Al, for having me. And please call me Rick through the rest of our interview here. Uh, it's, it's a delight to have a chance to speak about uh, the book that I've been working on now for quite a few years. Well, we'll get to that, but I, I want to lay some background. Um, I was thinking about this. Um, this is a uh, terribly overlooked um, view, as I've said. Uh, this is not a way that people have of looking at um, early America, for the most part, unless they're scholars. Um, people outside the academy don't understand how uh, the history of Native Americans has really, I, I would say, um, you were on the winning side in the uh, academic wars in early America. Um, the, if you look at job postings over the last 20 years, um, what is wanted are early Americanists who have some knowledge of Native Americans. Um, this is sort of, we're now, uh, what's Daniel Richter's uh, book? Uh, we're facing East from Indian country. Um, and that's the view that Papanank uh, provides us. But we need to learn some of the basics. Um, for, for First of all, he's a Muncie. Um, who are the Muncie? And um, where did they live? Uh, who are they connected to? What was their culture uh, at, the, at about the time that Papanank was, Papanank was born? Right. So his uh, approximate dates are about 1705 to, uh, we know he died in 1775. The uh, Muncies are, are not a well-known group compared to, for example, the Six Nations of the Iroquois Confederacy or uh, the Mohicans or Mohicans that were uh, neighbors of theirs. Um, they really represent a kind of consolidation of a number of smaller Indian people groups who, uh, as best we know, originated, at least at the point of European contact, they were living in uh, areas stretching from Long Island up uh, into the Hudson Valley, especially the lower half of the Hudson Valley, and then down into uh, certainly lower New York and the upper Delaware uh, River Valley, so parts of what today would be both Pennsylvania into western New Jersey, etc., and uh, they were a significant uh, Indian people in the 17th century, particularly as the Dutch began to colonize uh, what became New Netherland. And uh, scholars studying that experience of the Dutch have suggested recently that the Muncies were probably the most significant indigenous people group that the Dutch were in contact with. They established uh, substantial trade with the Muncies over the first few decades. But as unfortunately happened in so many other places within early America, as the European presence grew, uh, the tensions between Dutch and Muncies also grew. So that by the 1740s and 50s, 
uh, we see a series of wars between the Dutch and the Munsees. In fact, probably three separate wars that carry on. And uh, the upshot of that are results that include a certain amount of depopulation, a um, reduction in the uh, land possession uh, for the Munsees, some of which happened not because of war, but because of, or at least not directly because of war, but because of land sales that will carry on into the later 17th century. So it's it's a story of great challenge for the Munsees in that century and a significant decline in their population by the time um, my figure, uh, Papunank, is born. Uh, we're probably talking about a total of somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 Munsees who are still living. By that point, they have moved southward. They've been largely pushed out of Long Island. They've been pushed out of the Hudson Valley, and they're going to take refuge, so to speak, in western New Jersey. Probably the largest enclave is at a place called Minisink, and uh, they're also present within the Delaware Valley, although uh, they're moving now into the Susquehanna Valley, particularly in the early 1700s. So he's he's born into a challenging time for his people. And I think on the whole, uh, his life as we know it, or can reconstruct it uh, for probably the first half of his life is uh, going to be largely reflective of the wider patterns that uh, his people group encountered. Within uh, the area that I've described, they had been, uh, as many Eastern Woodland Indian groups had been, they had moved seasonally. They often went closer to the ocean uh, in the spring and summer to get access to various uh, fish products. Uh, other times they are engaged in both farming and hunting and gathering. So they had a mixed economy, and uh, that figure of between 1,500 and 2,000 is uh, down from probably somewhere around 15,000 at the point of contact with in, uh, Europeans in the late 16th century. So that gives a, a little bit of a profile of where they were, how many were involved, why they were having to move, and a bit of the situation as he's born. So... Um... Let me uh, pin you down about a couple things, which I have to admit probably extends back to like the fourth grade unit on New Jersey history, uh, somewhere <laughs> in the back of my head. I have to admit this is where this is coming from. But I, I seem to recall studying very intently a map of uh, the Lenape. Um, and the Muncie were one on um, that one was identified as one of three clans or sub-tribes of the Lenape or the people that are called the Delaware. Uh, later on, um, is that true, or are they are they part of the Lenape, or the Lenape more of uh, is that a term that other people gave the uh, a, a group of tribes which weren't really related? Um, what's what's the story here? Yes, well, um, it's complicated. How's that for an answer? <laughs> this is a what's a very complicated book, and so we yes. we, we um, tackle this right. So um, one. Uh, probably the the greatest expert on the Munsees uh, is an anthropologist now retired, Robert Grumet, who wrote a whole book uh, about 10 years ago called The Munsees. And I would encourage people, if they have wider interest in the history of this particular indigenous group, to check that book out. Um, the, 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 even the term the Munsees is, or Munsee is, we think not used until maybe the 1720s. So it's um, something of a convenience to refer to these earlier uh, somewhat related groups as Munsees further north, for example. Um, but it just helps us to have some categories. Um, so the term Munsee derives from actually a linguistic category or group um, that uh, represents a language very similar to what the Lenape in Pennsylvania spoke, but it's 
what we might call a different dialect. And it was different enough that uh, you, you would see it as two separate languages, I would argue, uh, because the amount of uh, interchangeability and understanding from one to the other uh, was not automatic, we'll say. Um, so one way of thinking about this is that the Munsees are speaking a language that's related to uh, what becomes known as the Southern Delaware, the Lenape language. Um, and in that sense, they have a kind of um, familial connection to the larger group of Delawares, but retain for a long time a, I think, a distinctive sort of national identity. Now, when indigenous groups began to take on the notion of being a quote-unquote nation is itself a complicated and controversial issue. Uh, historians tend to see that happening in the 18th century. Uh, there are Eastern Delawares, for example, and Western Delawares out in Ohio. And uh, post-American Revolution, those groups consolidate. And uh, the, the history of the Munsees after the time period of my book is one where some become absorbed into larger Delaware communities. Others, uh, right to today, have uh, retained uh, their own villages and communities in, uh, for example, southern Ontario and in upper Wisconsin and uh, handfuls in Kansas. Uh, so it's it's a long, twisted, complicated history. Um, best not to see them simply as a clan, for example, of the Delawares. Within the Munsees, some anthropologists would say that they were three uh, clan groups within the Munsees themselves. Even that gets to be uh, fairly controversial. So um, pigeonholing all these people is... Uh, more difficult than it might seem from the outside. We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> so uh, one of the things, and, and you've, you've, we've talked about Eastern Delawares and Western Delawares. You mentioned Southern Delawares earlier. Of course, these, these right. geographical designations will be very fluid during the 18th century. Yes. Um, the uh, Delaware, uh, the Southern Delaware, um, like others around them, like the Nanticokes, um, had the reputation of being peace-loving Indians. We were always told that the Iroquois, who were not ever peace-loving, um, regard called them the old women. Um, is there a is that true? Is there a particular peace tradition amongst sort of the Southern Delawares? Uh, the Muncie obviously did not share that insofar as they went to war with the Dutch. Right. Um. Well, all these things are uh, trickier than the standard generalizations. I think sure. the the, um, the Southern Delawares, uh, who met uh, famously with William Penn in the 1780s as Pennsylvania is being founded, and then over the course of the next couple of decades, get that reputation because Penn himself, uh, alongside a number of these headmen of the Southern Delawares, were committed to trying to establish uh, a better track record of uh, peaceful relations with uh, Native peoples than Penn had observed in other parts of early America, particularly New England. Uh, what we know as King Philip's War had just occurred in primarily Massachusetts and Rhode Island, and uh, was a very, very bloody affair. And, and Penn was committed, in part because of his own uh, Quaker commitments, uh, to trying to do better, to provide a record of peace and justice. And um, to a certain extent, that proved to be true compared to other colonies, uh, particularly in the first 40 to 50 years of Pennsylvania's history, uh, I think we can see a pattern that is more peaceful uh, and uh, in that respect uh, created a kind of um, usable past for both Pennsylvanians and uh, native groups there to appeal when 
later conflicts arose to that history of peace and harmony. And uh, this was not just convenient, but but a significant, uh, well, some historians have called it sort of founding myth about mm-hmm. uh, the early history there. Now, I say with respect to the Munsees, yes, they did end up uh, fighting these wars with the Dutch, but one can certainly find examples there of significant peacemaking efforts. Uh, uh, I speak in the book about one particular headman from Long Island, uh, Takapusha, who mm-hmm. uh, engaged in over uh, 40 or 50 years in a, a, a very impressive range of tactics, we'll call them. Yes. Uh, everything from legal wrangling to um, more straightforward diplomacy to land sales, et cetera, et cetera. And I think those are important precedents mm-hmm. for later Native uh, headmen who are looking for alternatives to resorts to war. And um, certainly one of the main points of my book is uh, not only for the general public, but even for my colleagues within early American history to um, pay greater attention to these um, dispositions, inclinations, ideas, practices, rituals that collectively I'm calling an indigenous peacemaking tradition. Mm -hmm. Um, Was it a coherent, clear set of ideas and practices? Well, I don't think so, but I think we have been so inclined towards um, noticing, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, the war stories uh, that we have missed what one colleague is calling the narratives of peace within uh, native European relations. And I would go so far as to say that Uh, Even in the broad scope of the 300 years, let's say, from Columbus to the American Revolution, we can find, of course, uh, innumerable instances where violence occurs between Europeans and Native peoples, as well as between Native peoples and other Native peoples. But most of the time, or at least much of the time, I think the response of the native persons to the European presence was to try to find more uh, quiet ways of dealing with the consequences of the changes, the enormous changes that colonialism brought. And I think we need to do a somewhat better balancing act in terms of telling that narrative, not to underplay or to diminish what we see as the very negative consequences of that colonial imperialism, but to do justice, frankly, to the stories and lives that um, Native peoples and their communities led across those, at at the very least, three centuries. Well, to get back to Takapusa, um, because in in his life, I I think um, it provides us a nice um, taste of uh, Papanunks, um, uh, uh, some of his uh, life, but um, Takapusa had such a clear, uh, how to put it, he had such a clear strategic vision about the life of peace that he wanted that he was able to employ a really, as you as you just alluded to, uh, a really dizzying array of tactics to achieve that. Um, it, it just He sounds absolutely brilliant from what can be known of him. Yeah, and I uh, certainly haven't done uh, extensive research. I'm going on the, you know, on the basis of what others have written about him recently. Mm-hmm. But um, in in that instance, a bit like uh, the kind of research I needed to do, you um, you mine the sources, and uh, in in his case, uh, there is. Um, more evidence of these uh, legal documents, especially land sales, for example, and and some court documents from early uh, New Netherland and, and then New York as the English take over in the 1660s and then again in the 1670s. 
to point to the kind of um, uh, range of strategies, as you've put it nicely, that he uh, picked up on. And in some ways, as I began to try to put Papunung's story together, um, having read about other various Indian headmen who seemed to possess some of these kinds of um, peacemaking inclinations and talents, <clears throat> one of the questions I was, <clears throat> excuse me, most <clears throat> interested in was to begin to uh, tally almost in a certain kind of way the, again, range of strategies that were employed or available to Papunan because he <clears throat> carried on efforts to do what I would say all Native communities were trying to do, which was <clears throat> find a place where they could live, work, worship as they wanted to with uh, at least some sense of autonomy, sovereignty, uh, in the midst of many, many, uh, particularly for a group like the Munsees, who are smaller, don't have the cloud of the Six Nations, for example, or other some other Native groups, to you know carve out a place where they could live their lives with with some degree of um, security and confidence that uh, they weren't going to have to pack everything up and move yet again. And, uh, you know, I would say he was able to provide for them uh, partial success in that quest over the course of his lifetime. Well, I, I, before we move on any further, describe some of those partial successes. Um, how did you go about uncovering his life? Um, the second part of his life is there is a biography, a Lebenslauf. It's in German. Uh, we'll talk about later about why that is. Um, but you went about reconstructing his early life as well. How did you, uh, to what age, um, where does the Lebenslauf begin and how did you uh, reconstruct what happened before then? Right. Um, so what you're referring to is a short biography written just after his death by a Moravian missionary, which was uh, a very common Moravian Christian practice. Uh, it's only about 500 words, so it doesn't tell us all that much. And uh, in this case, uh, the missionary, a man named David Zeisberger, fairly well-known missionary, uh, started Papunung's story at his baptism, which happens in 1763. So um, I mentioned earlier that he uh, died in 75. So that gives us uh, a few clues about his last 12 years. And most of what Zeisberger says there is really about the final three years of Papunan's life. Uh, at that point, they were uh, living in uh, what today would be Eastern Ohio. So, so it's not as helpful as I made out. Okay. Uh, well, it's uh, <laughs> you can call it a biography um, if you uh, qualify that to uh, a 500 yeah. word snapshot. Yeah. Um, yeah, of three years. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you had Rick Pointer had a lot more work to do. Um, right. Right. Yeah. yeah. So um, the um, the historical record in terms of references to him specifically um, really only goes back uh, even in the things that uh, are recorded later on to about 1750. So um, readers should know that most of the biography that I've written is about the final 25 years of this man's life. Um, so what do we do with the first 45 years of his life? Well, um, perhaps someday we'll find other materials that will uh, give us some clues. But what I had to do in an opening chapter was really write uh, a much more broad stroke uh, characterization of uh, possible places where he, uh, I'll say, likely uh, spent time or grew up given the propensity of where Muncie's were at that time, and, and really write more broadly about what was happening with Muncie's in the first half of the 18th century. And uh, 
speculate a bit about uh, what his life would have been like, given what we know about other Munsees, as well as more broadly about Eastern Woodland Indians. Uh, we certainly can uh, fill in some of that background uh, on the painting that I was trying to uh, uh, illustrate, I suppose, in one sense, uh, with respect to the dynamics of Pennsylvania politics and, again, the position of Muncie's within the complicated web of uh, European rivalries between the French and the English, uh, rivalries between native groups, and um, to say a lot of times probably or perhaps or odds are. And I went into the biography knowing I was going to have to do that. But um, as I identify or, or acknowledge in the introduction of the book, to provide a what I will call a partial life, um, as opposed to concluding that because we can't with any definity speak about his earlier life, that in and of itself would uh, be a reason uh, not to write a biography uh, struck me as um, not a good choice, we'll say. Uh, I think too often we have been inclined uh, as historians to um, shy away from stories where we uh, have an incomplete record, we'll say. Uh, of course, all historians deal with incomplete records, but, but uh, gravitate back to uh, figures or uh, stories that we have uh, a, a good deal more evidence for, we'll say. And, and I think that's frankly one of the reasons why we uh, continue to get, um, I'll call them rivers of biographies and other books about very, very well-known figures, many of which are fabulous books, but um, certainly one agenda uh, for my book is to put at least a small dent in the propensity to continue to have early American biography dominated by a few white men, to be perfectly blunt. Um, around 1750, um, Papanak has a vision um, and he becomes a prophet. Was it unusual for a Muncie or any other indigenous person to have a vision that late in life? And what did it mean to be a prophet um, for a Muncie in 1750s Pennsylvania? Yeah, so those those are great and pertinent questions. Um, so in his case, uh, he reached, uh, based on his own testimony given uh, about a decade later, to um, some Quakers, um, the way he told the story was that he had reached a, a very low point in his own adult life, uh, particularly following the death of his father. Uh, he alludes in this narrative to the fact that he uh, had struggled with uh, alcohol, probably we would characterize him as an alcoholic, um, which sadly was uh, one of the challenges for many Native peoples. Um, he decides to go on what's called a vision quest, which is a um, experience, again, that was very common among Eastern Woodland Indians. And by that phrase, I mean the, the Indians who populated uh, the Atlantic coast and um, the uh, what we might call the 13 original colonies. Uh, typically, those vision quests occurred uh, as a rite of passage for young men, that is, young boys uh, reaching what we would call teenagerhood. And what that entailed would be to go off for several days um, with the hope that uh, through drinking, uh, usually some kind of 
um, what what should we call it? Um, I'll just call it a drink that had uh, hallucinogenic potential, at least that that this would enable them to uh, encounter the spirit world and specifically uh, what natives called manitous, that is um, a, a sort of individual spirit that would be their guiding force through life. It was more unusual for an older adult to uh, engage in a vision quest, but they weren't that um, unusual. So um, Papunik decides to go on this adult vision quest and leaves his community for five days, actually without telling anyone, at least as he tells the story. And uh, a number of his friends went looking for him and didn't find him. But uh, on the fifth day of this vision quest, he encounters the supernatural, has a dramatic vision that um, gives him what he even refers to as a kind of new call on his life. And this call is um, profound. And uh, he comes back to his community with a newfound sense of purpose and meaning, a renewed spirit in terms of his own um, emotions, and a dedication now to uh, spread the word that's been given to him by uh, this vision that he's uh, experienced. And that vision includes... I would argue most fundamentally a commitment to peace as absolutely uh, the focal point of what he's going to share with um, presumably his family initially, uh, friends, and then uh, from this tendency to tell what he's experienced, uh, some at some point, pretty soon, it's morphing into what I guess we would call preaching. And over the next uh, couple of years, um, he's preaching in such a way that he begins to gather a following. And um, within a few years, that following seems to number anywhere from 50 to 100 people who are gathered around him. And this makes him one of a number of prophets, uh, religious visionaries, um, who emerged from the 1730s to the 1760s in many different native communities, but particularly in uh, the mid-Atlantic region of Pennsylvania, the Delaware Valley, New Jersey, Ohio. And um, these visionaries or prophets are, are religious reformers. They're uh, telling their communities uh, that, among other things, they need to return to the ways of their forefathers, that they have experienced many difficulties in the present moment because they have become unfaithful to the um, uh, religious practices that are the heart of Indian religion and <clears throat> included in this uh, call to a kind of revitalization of um, the ancient ways. Uh, for most of these prophets, it'll include a rejection of European culture, European religion. Uh, they want to um, keep as much distance from the Europeans as possible. Uh, some even preach what comes to be called a separate creation theology. That is, they believe that indigenous persons were created separately from white persons as uh, as well as from black persons. And um, into that mix then, you have Papunung uh, bringing his own message, distinctive um, and sort of sorting out what it is that he's gonna be saying and doing over the course of the next decade is a, a critical piece of understanding him as a prophet and the ways in which he's similar to and different from these other prophets. And he's different, say, from the best known of the Delaware prophets would be Naolin, I would imagine, uh, who 
is whose message is taken up by Pontiac and the great sort of uh, trans-native rebellion in 1763, right? Um, but Papunung's message is very, well, it's like, and yet it's very different in its commitment to peace. Exactly. Yeah. So um, that's uh, probably, you're right, the um, most obvious contrasting figure in this same period. Uh, and and certainly one point of difference is that to whatever extent Pontiac was inspired by that nativist message to engage in outright rebellion uh, in response to very legitimate concerns, um, that's not a direction that Papuna would want to see uh, his own people and any people uh, choose. Um, The other difference would be the fact that uh, for a range of reasons, he uh, that is, Papuna chooses to be much more open to uh, European Christianity. He has great concerns about many, many elements of European culture. And in that respect, he's certainly not a kind of thoroughgoing accommodationist to European ways. But he has a lot of contact over the course of the second half of the 1750s with uh, Christian groups, specifically Quakers and Moravians, uh, and into the early 1760s, where he is sampling uh, as part of a whole range of other peacemaking strategies, what they are saying, including their peace commitments, their own pacifism, though perhaps slightly different from his own, And um, ultimately, of course, uh, he himself chooses to become a Christian within the Moravian orbit by 1763. That's a direction that uh, most of these other prophets are not willing to go, that they they see uh, the Christian influence within their communities as divisive, as a kind of alien European religion. And Papunank uh, rejects that uh, interpretation of what uh, Christianity represents. And alongside uh, Native peoples from New England to Georgia, uh, make decisions on his own about the way in which ultimately Christianity can be something that um, uh, for him is not only useful, but true and uh, is part of a much broader process of what scholars have uh, described as the ways in which Native persons made Christianity their own. And I think that's an appropriate way of characterizing what uh, he and other uh, Moravian Christian Indians were about. We can speak more about that if you want Yeah, let's to. talk about the Moravians. Um, it's... Um... People know of them. Uh, it's probably related to this time of the year, uh, to the Moravian Star, which I see mm-hmm. is a Christmas decoration probably in homes sometimes of people who don't really know who Moravians are. Um, so let's talk about who they were, where they're from, and uh, how in the world did a, a Delaware in the Wyoming Valley of Pennsylvania, how did he run into them? Right. So the Moravians uh, trace their history back to the early 15th century and the uh, followers of a uh, pre-Protestant Reformation reformer by the name of John Huss or Jan Hus in uh, what today is the Czech Republic. Uh, The Hussites uh, became a persecuted group, but in the early 18th century, uh, there was a kind of revival of them, and uh, the Moravians uh, in what today would be uh, Germany, Uh, came to uh, reform themselves and become uh, a small German pietist movement. Not too long after they got going again in Germany, they began to engage in international missionary work, and that took them to various points around the globe, including North America, And uh, they came to both, uh, initially to Georgia, 
uh, their mission there didn't work out so well. But then in around 1740, they established a community in what today is Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. They called it Bethlehem, and that became their hub. Uh, they were very, very active in evangelization, not only of other uh, European settlers, but particularly of uh, Native people. And that's how they found their way uh, further west into Pennsylvania and began to work among uh, Indians there, as well as up in uh, the Housatonic Valley in New York and Connecticut. And uh, in the context then of their mission outreach in the 1740s and 50s, Papunik uh, began to run into them. Uh, we know, for example, that by the mid-1750s, uh, several of their missionaries actually uh, were preaching in his town uh, in what is now, or very close to what is now Lackawanna, Pennsylvania. And so he would have begun to hear uh, snatches, you might say, bits and pieces of their message. And um, over the course then of a number of years, he becomes more and more familiar with them. He spent with his family uh, several times in the late 1750s, a week or two, visiting uh, their um, Christian Indian community outside of Bethlehem called Nain. Uh, the Moravians had their own uh, philosophy or method of evangelizing Indians that was quite different from any of the other uh, Protestant or Catholic groups that had come, uh, but especially other Protestant groups that had come from Europe. And um, their methods tended to be, as I suggested a moment ago, uh, more successful in drawing Indians into their community and establishing these uh, native towns uh, where perhaps just two or four European missionaries lived with them, but otherwise the residents were all indigenous persons. So um, Papununk uh, becomes a prophet of peace and encounters the Moravians during a time of, of one of the great, uh, not just a military, but one of the great cultural and social convulsions of American history, which is what we call the French and Indian War. Um, it's, um, I don't know if it's an unpropitious time or propitious time to be a prophet of peacemaking mm -hmm. um, when Pennsylvania is the epicenter of uh, such um, a, a destruction. Um, but how does he, how does he make his way uh, over those, uh, those, through those years of war? Yeah. Well, it's very, very difficult. And uh, Pennsylvania, as you said, is really the center of the action from about 1755 till uh, into 1758, then much of the fighting will move northward and, and uh, <clears throat> some level of peace is established in, in Pennsylvania. But uh, for any native persons in Pennsylvania, it's a very difficult time. Uh, the war actually broke out in 1754 in what we call the Ohio country. And then uh, Western Delawares and Shawnee Indians join with French forces and begin raiding uh, Pennsylvania uh, home sites and villages in uh, first Western Pennsylvania, then Central Pennsylvania, and they're moving further and further east. There's lots and lots of retaliatory violence going on. Um, it is really a very, very destructive, scary, terrifying time, and tremendous animosities are built up on both sides. Not surprisingly, as the Western Delawares move eastward, they're hoping that any remaining Eastern Delawares living in Pennsylvania will join with them and fight against uh, the English and their colonial allies. Uh, for someone like Papunank and his community who are committed to peace, they've got to figure out uh, very quickly uh, <clears throat> how to keep themselves alive. And there's tremendous pressure really from all sides to pick a side, and that's the last thing he wants to do. So among his strategies will be at least initially political neutrality, uh, but probably the most important decision he makes is geographical migration to move from one part of Pennsylvania to what 
he hopes will be a much more out of the way place. And that out of the way place for him ends up being uh, at the very top of the Susquehanna River in Pennsylvania, close to the New York border, not quite to the border, but in a place that's far enough from most other whites and even most of the uh, warring Indians that he believes this can provide a haven for his people. And it turns out that he's uh, successful in that. We don't know uh, with any certainty the size of the community that he brings with him, but probably the best estimate is 100 to 200 Indians. And then uh, once peace is uh, more uh, firmly established through a series of um, peace agreements by 1758, he picks out an even better place for them to settle in a town that uh, is called Wyalusing. It's That's still the name of the town in Pennsylvania. It's a bit further south on the Susquehanna, not, not terribly far, but he's, he's really already, you know, trying to find some place out of the way where they can live their lives um, without having to be forced into uh, engaging in uh, <clears throat> violent conflict that uh, he sees as um, not only for moral and religious reasons, but I think even for pragmatic reasons as uh, going to have very ill consequences for Native peoples. So uh, part of this uh, time is characterized uh, by lots of attendance, uh, lots of negotiations with white Pennsylvanians, um, peace conferences, and so on, uh, which are tremendously important events, as I take it from your book, um, and well, also from you know reading other sources. Uh, there's sort of important events in American history that we've forgotten, these various peace negotiations. Uh, for sure. Yeah. In fact, uh, in an 18th century context, they're, they're usually referred to as treaties. We think yeah. of that as a written document. But any kind of diplomatic exchange uh, in that time period was referred to as a treaty. Some of these were small affairs. Some of them became the kinds of uh, occasions where hundreds of Indians were present and um, representatives of various colonial governments, as well as representatives of the British government, uh, were present. Uh, a number of these uh, happened in Pennsylvania at the town of Easton in uh, eastern Pennsylvania. And Papununk uh, eventually is going to attend some of these. Early on, there's no evidence that he was attending the first of these, but it was really uh, the place where uh, <clears throat> various competing groups could uh, meet together for the purpose of, uh, I would say, from an Indian point of view, expressing mutual respect. They often wanted to begin those with what are called condolence ceremonies, that is, expressions of, of sympathy and uh, compassion for the losses on both sides that had already occurred. Uh, this is part of um, conflict resolution techniques that we find, for example, among the Iroquois, as well as other groups. And I think Papunik was familiar with those kinds of uh, diplomatic uh, strategies and protocols. Uh, they are opportunities for uh, long speeches to occur. Uh, they are what natives had used in inter-native uh, dialogue. Um, it's what they're accustomed to. And we have found that the um, style of these peace conferences and the kinds of actions taken at them uh, were largely uh, following native protocols. Um, <clears throat> one of the challenges that occurs for Indians after 1763 is that the British um, military leadership who remain at the end of the French and Indian War, the Seven Years' War, were less inclined to think that these treaties should be carried on that way. And um, 
that was a recipe for failure uh, mm. in terms of British diplomacy. And, and, it, and, uh, it, and it did. It um, did. It did fail. Which, which leads to the second um, uh, Pennsylvania again being an epicenter of violence uh, in with the, the Pontiac, Pontiac's war. Um, can you br- briefly talk about the um, the the, the um, what happened because of that the Paxton the Paxton boys, um, uh, which were sort of the a uh, the most vicious biker gang you could think of, <laughs> transplanted to the seventeen sixty three frontier of the Susquehanna uh, Valley, and then the um, and then the resulting crisis. Right. Yeah. So at the uh, as the Seven Year War uh, wound down. Uh, I think the tendency of many, many colonists was to presume, uh, well, we've won this war, and one of the fruits of that victory should be uh, greater access to settling the western frontier and moving beyond where uh, the lines of settlement had existed to that point and being able to move into what today would be Ohio, Kentucky, etc. Of course, from the standpoint of native peoples in those regions, uh, that's the last thing that they wanted. And um, frustrations grew on both sides. They were also concerned out there about the fact that the war was over and yet uh, British forts remained and they remained manned. And so they had a range of complaints. And out of their uh, frustration and irritation uh, grew uh, a rebellion led by this a figure named Pontiac, uh, but including many different Indian peoples as a kind of pan-Indian confederacy. And they begin uh, raiding in the summer of 1763 into the fall, again along the western Pennsylvania frontier and then moving eastward. And this uh, creates uh, a new round of um, terror tactics I would say, even terrorist tactics on both sides um, as retaliatory violence once more springs up. The Paxton boys become uh, well-known because they are, uh, as you alluded to, uh, something of a militia group, vigilante group, uh, at best with uh, very, very quasi-authority to try to um, provide protection for their families and communities. One of their central complaints is that the Pennsylvania government, who they see as dominated by pacifist Quakers, as having provided too little protection and defense for decades on the Pennsylvania frontier. And so they choose to exact their own form of justice, uh, first on a group of completely peaceful Indians uh, at Conestoga, and following massacring several dozen of them there in December of 1763, their next target are Indians who have uh, been removed to Philadelphia for protection by the Pennsylvania government. Uh, At this point, groups like the Paxtons make no differentiation in their own minds about peaceful versus warring Indians, all Indians in their definition are warlike and are the cause of the failure of the Pennsylvania government to do what it needed to do, which was to um, ultimately, I would say, in their minds, uh, get rid of these people one way or another. And all of this pertains to my story because uh, Papunank is one of those Indians taking refuge in in Philadelphia, rather, uh, under the protection of the Pennsylvania government And uh, he and uh, about 150 other Moravian Indians are the main targets of these Paxton boys uh, who march on Philadelphia in February of 1764. It's a very scary situation. There's somewhere probably between 250 and 300 of these men heavily armed. And um, fortunately, Warfare is avoided in that instance through uh, the negotiation that actually Benjamin Franklin and a few others carry on with them. And um, Papununk and his people uh, spend about 16 total months in Philadelphia as war refugees in a very 
difficult situation, one that in some ways, uh, if you think about war refugees, even in the 21st century, would have some strong parallels. Mm-hmm. Uh, the refugees are then uh, Papunung takes them back to Wyalusing. Is that that's correct? And and forms a greater a greater community, a Moravian community of Indians there. Is that Friedus Hutten? That's right. Yeah. And uh, could you describe that community and 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 its sort of its lifespan? Right. Well, it will survive for uh, seven years in that spot. At the end of this period of refuge in Philadelphia where more than 50 of that 150 die from disease. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a really uh, tragic uh, piece of his story. Uh, they finally convince the Pennsylvania government that it's safe enough for them to leave. And interestingly enough, they move back to the very town where Papununk had lived between 1758 and 1763. By that point, uh, the town has been destroyed, so they're starting from scratch. But um, this will be a Moravian uh, community. That is, it's a, a community with a handful of German missionaries, but uh, anywhere from, again, 150 to over 200 uh, Native peoples living there. It's certainly an Indian town, uh, the majority of whom are there because they are committed to Moravian Christianity. But there are others who uh, you might even say take refuge there because it becomes a very prosperous, fruitful community, economically sustainable, which is not the case for many other Indian communities. Um, It is um, attempting to live out um, the... um, uh, kind of daily routines, both of Moravian Christianity, but also of uh, traditional Native um, practices with respect to sustaining themselves with a certain kind of farming. And uh, they adopt <clears throat> Moravian-style uh, housing, so it becomes more Europeanized. It's a series of uh, pretty well-built log cabins, and they situate themselves uh, right by the Susquehanna River, and um, the town gains a very favorable reputation. It attracts a lot of people. At the same time, the community is trying to work diplomatically, particularly Papununk, to gain more permanent authorization for being there. And their eventual departure from the town in the early 1770s is a function of Yet one more treaty, the Treaty of Fort Stanwix of 1768, where the six nations who claim sovereignty over all Pennsylvania Indians, a sovereignty recognized by the British government and Pennsylvania to sell the land upon which Wyalusing sits, as well as much other land, to the Pennsylvania government. And and that uh, choice is... um, really uh, driven by the um, desire of Pennsylvania to gain more uh, opportunity for uh, white settlement. And so out of that um, pressure, um, those uh, living in Friedenshutten or Wyalusing decide with another Moravian community nearby to move to the Ohio country in hopes of achieving what they've been looking for all along. (laughs) Again, some kind of uh, place where they can live uh, semi-autonomously, peacefully, separate from non-Christian Indians and uh, really separate from virtually all whites apart from their own missionaries. Well, there are so many uh, details that we could get into, um, uh, but uh, time forbids that. I just want to conclude with a, a couple of, uh, of, of questions. Um, uh, we've already al- uh, alluded to some of your detective work in uncovering the details of Papanunk's uh, life. Um, how long have you been working on this project? Uh, and, and I was wondering, does, does Rick Pointer, do, do you read Moravian German now? Um, well, the, 
second question is easier to answer, no. And so, <laughs> um, you know, if I was a younger man, I, I probably would have felt um, a greater compulsion to do the very hard work of, first of all, learning German, and then second of all, working on 18th century German and even more difficult, reading 18th century German script. Gotik um, Schrift, yeah. Yeah, mm. the, the, the number of folks who can do the latter are uh, far and few between. Uh, oh. I was very fortunate to have um, at my um, disposal the services of three excellent translators who um, very, very kindly worked with me over the course of several years to um, translate the Moravian letters and diaries that were absolutely essential to piecing his story together. Uh, as far as how long it took me, well, uh, this book came about like a lot of <clears throat> research uh, projects. Uh, it, it wasn't uh, my first target, so to speak. I, sure. I had finished an earlier book and had some ongoing interest in Quaker-Indian relations. And as I got into that, this would be back as long ago as 2008, uh, I began to run into this fellow um, and uh, he kept showing up. And, um, <laughs> and then I had an interlude for about three years where I was uh, working as a college administrator here at Westmont as the provost. And um, uh, that position uh, did not have any um, free time in it for my own research. So I got back to it in 2012. And uh, the next uh, four years uh, included uh, very extensive research. Certainly, it was the biggest uh, detective project I've ever taken on, but very exciting because I felt like, uh, for, for one thing, this is a fascinating and uh, important story, uh, an untold story. It, um, it needs to be known. He needs to be known. And uh, I was also encouraged by the fact that there were a few articles and books coming out around there who mentioned him, gave him a paragraph or two, or an, at the most, a page or two, and and seemed to be telling different bits and pieces of his story, but nobody was putting it together into any kind of coherent whole. And that got me excited about trying to do that. Um, I will say that uh, one of the challenges of this project was uh, convincing a university press that um, a biography of a completely unknown native person was uh, worth telling. It is um, um, not the easiest marketing job I've ever engaged in, we'll say. But Nebraska has turned out to be a fabulous press to work with, and uh, they have a tremendous track record in uh, Native American history, and so it's it's ended up where it uh, belongs. Um, I, I'd like to finish uh, by asking you about the very first sentence of the entire book, uh, which is in your acknowledgments on um, what's tiny Roman number 13. That's the page number. Yep. Um, I, I don't know what the official, <laughs> I don't know what the official title for that is, the name for that is, but you say writing and others' life is a humbling experience. Um, could you uh, please gloss that? Well, I had not written a biography before, and uh, I tried to um, learn a bit from many other biographers. Uh, but even with that, I don't think I anticipated uh, as I went along in this project, and maybe even especially as I uh, began to reach the end, uh, to anticipate the sense that uh, to tell another person's life, however far in the past that might be, is uh, it's an intimidating act of faith, we might call it. Um, 
I, I think all biographers, all historians hope that uh, whether writing about one person or about uh, whole groups, that that what you communicate, uh, if if they were to read that, that they would um, at least nod in agreement to the extent that this, as as I say later in the acknowledgments, has has a family resemblance <laughs> to the life that they lived. And that um, that I would, uh, in the most basic sense, be doing justice, being fair, uh, giving Papununk and his people uh, their due, as it were. And uh, to aspire to do that, it seems to me, um, should leave any of us feeling inadequate to the task. And so um, I've clearly tried to do my best to tell his story well, uh, but more importantly, to do it in such a way that um, if he were to have access to this in some sort of way that um, uh, he, he could he could recognize the person that I have described as uh, being him or, or someone like him. My guest today has been Rick Pointer. He's the author of Pacifist Prophet, Papununk and the Quest for Peace in Early America. Rick, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for your interest in uh, my book and uh, these, um, what I think are really important stories that are part of uh, Native American heritage, but uh, in a very fundamental way, part of uh, all of our uh, American pass. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runnett. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.